Hello and welcome. I'm Carolyn and you're listening to Behind Bars. Today's case is probably the most classic case of a serial killer and rapist. As in, if I asked you to draw a picture of a paedophile, you would end up drawing Dean Call. Honestly, he offered free candy to kids, he drove everywhere in his white van, and yet, somehow, Call went unnoticed in Houston for years in the 1960s and 70s. It all started back in 1967, when 12-year-old David Brooks was unfortunate enough to meet a 27-year-old electrician called Dean Call. When they first met, they were good friends, and Brooks soon started to view Call as a sort of father figure. His own parents were going through a divorce and had little time for him. Brooks found comfort in Call, and also saw him as someone stable in his life who wouldn't leave him like everyone else seemed to. However, Call didn't see him the same way. He started pestering him for sex and other activities, until eventually David agreed, fearing that Call would abandon him if he didn't. This sexual exploitation went on for a few years. Brooks spent about half his time in nearby Beaumont, but would visit Call whenever he was in Houston. But when Brooks was 15, everything changed. He arrived at Call's apartment like normal and let himself in. He'd forgotten to warn Call he was coming, but he figured it would be fine. That changed the second he walked in and saw two naked teenage boys tied down to Call's bed. When he heard the door open, he stopped molesting them and yelled at Brooks, quote, What are you doing here? As you expect, Brooks walked straight out of the apartment, shocked by what he'd just witnessed. Once his clothes were back on, Call tried to explain what had happened. He told Brooks he couldn't tell anyone what he'd seen because Call was part of a gay pornography ring which could get him into serious trouble with the police. He claimed that he'd sent the teenagers to California to make more porn after he'd finished with them. Later, when the pair grew closer, Call told Brooks the truth, that he'd killed the boys and buried them in his storage shed. For keeping these secrets, Call brought him a green Chevy Corvette and offered him $200, which is the equivalent of $1,200 in today's money. They officially became partners. Brooks would lure teenage boys to Call's apartment on Shuler Street in exchange for another $200 for each person, and Call would proceed to rape, torture and murder them. Call and Brooks had a few different methods to trick the teenagers. They favoured some more than others. Like I mentioned earlier, they would often start the conversation by offering free candy and chocolate. Call's mother owned a small factory nearby, where he could easily grab supplies from. From there, the conversation could go two ways. Either they'd tell them how ideal Call's apartment was for smoking, getting drunk or high without being caught, or they'd offer the boys rides in Call's white Econoline van or Brooks Chevy Corvette. One way or another, the teenagers would end up in Call's apartment. Once they arrived, Call would pay Brooks his $200 and wait as the teenagers passed out from the drugs and alcohol they'd come to take, or he'd drug them himself. They'd wake up tied to Call's bed, or what he called the torture board. This was a wooden plank about eight feet by two feet, with holes drilled into the corners. He could attach ropes and chains to the holes so he could tie down his victim's limbs with minimum fuss. If you're squeamish, skip this part of the episode. It's going to get pretty graphic. Don't say I didn't warn you. Call would usually keep his victims for a few days. Classic sadism, he'd torture and rape them until he caused the maximum amount of pain before he got rid of them. Some of his unluckiest victims were found with their genitals bitten off. Another one had a thin glass rod forced into his urethra and then broken. 
oh, I can't imagine the pain he was in in his last days. The thing I find weirdest about this case is how Cole passed under the radar for so long. He didn't live in the middle of nowhere, and if he lived in an apartment, he must have had neighbours. Maybe they thought they didn't know enough about Cole to report him to the police. Or maybe they figured no one likes nosy neighbours. Still, I'd have thought the screams would have been a sign that there was a serious problem. After he was finished torturing them, Cole had two favourite methods of murder. He'd shoot them in the forehead, mouth or chest. Occasionally he'd leave them to bleed out, but he usually liked to finish the job by strangling them. He buried his victims in various different spots, but by far the most common was a storage shed he rented in the local Southwest boat storage. Brooks and Cole got away with six or seven murders together, before another man joined the gang. Originally, Alma Wayne Henley was supposed to be just another victim. However, the pair hit it off so well that Cole decided Henley was too good to kill. So he let Henley in on their operation, although not completely. They were almost strangers, of course. He couldn't be expected to find out everything Brooks and Cole had done, or he might have run straight to the police. He told Henley a similar lie to the one he told Brooks when they first became partners, that the teenage boys Henley would take to the apartment were going to join a gay pornography ring. Henley was offered the same amount as Brooks, $200 for every victim, which he agreed to. It was a long time before he really found out the fate of the teenagers he delivered to Cole. Together, Brooks and Henley lured at least 28 boys aged 13 to 20 to Cole's apartment between 1970 and 1973. Bear in mind, these are only the confirmed cases. Many more may have actually died. By 1973, the police still hadn't caught on to their schemes. None of the missing persons had even been linked, since they were just random boys the men had met in the street. You would have thought their descriptions might have linked them, the fact that they were all boys of a similar age. But I guess police don't always live up to my expectations. Plus, I mean, it was the 1970s, who knows what was going on then. Despite this ignorance, things did start to go wrong in 1973. It all began when Henley did something so unspeakable, Cole found it hard to forgive him. He brought a girl into the apartment. Shocking, isn't it? Yes, on the 8th of August 1973, Henley invited a teenage couple, Timothy Curley and Rhonda Williams, for, quote, just a night of fun. Cole was so mad that once the pair were tied up, he started screaming at Henley, saying that he, quote, ruined everything. Henley told him not to worry. He should have realised the error earlier, so he told Cole that he would kill Rhonda whilst Cole tortured Timothy in the other room. However, as soon as he turned his back, Henley managed to grab Cole's pistol, which he'd left near his clothes. He yelled, quote, You've gone far enough, Dean, as he aimed it. Cole turned away from Timothy Curley to look Henley in the eye. According to Henley, Cole seemed quite amused. He didn't believe his partner would really shoot him. Henley was still barely 17 in 1973, and although he'd been doing plenty of illegal stuff with Cole and Brooks, his role had never involved hurting anyone. His parts just involved talking to boys his age and driving them to Cole. Anyway, as Henley pointed the gun at Cole, he shouted, quote, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. Even though he was naked, being held at gunpoint, and nowhere near a weapon or shield, Cole continued to mock him. 
Smiling, he taunted him by saying, quote, kill me. He finally realised he'd underestimated Henley. Henley advanced towards him, still holding the gun, and shot Call six times in the head and torso until he slumped against the wall and died. After confirming he was dead, or at least unable to move, Henley untied Rhonda and Timothy and called the police to tell them what had been going on. He quickly confessed in custody and named David Brooks as Cole's other accomplice. Between the two men's stories, the police slowly pieced together what had been happening behind the doors of 925 Shuler Street. Henley reeled off a list of the children he'd brought to call and where their bodies could be found. Suddenly, the police found themselves crossing off more than half of the people on Houston's missing persons list. Brooks gave them a few more names of people only he'd taken to call, but he was a bit less charitable with the information than Henley had been. Brooks had been a lot closer to call, and although he confessed, he was more reluctant, as you can imagine. And so, the search for the missing teenagers began. Call's favourite body dumping spot had been a storage shed he rented at the SBS, or Southwest Boat Storage. He'd hidden plenty of them in other spots as well, though. Eventually, the police had to call off the search. No, it wasn't because they were lazy. The body count exceeded the highest in the USA's mass murder history. At this point, they assumed the list of names Henley had told them were all correct and could be taken off the missing persons list. But since they stopped the search after finding 28 corpses, the men were only ever charged with their deaths. That's why I said at the start they could have killed way more. One of these bodies was so mutilated and rotten that it couldn't even be identified. Since they'd both confessed, the death penalty was taken off the table. They were both given life sentences with different parole clauses. Brooks would have been eligible for parole in the year 2028, but he died earlier this year of coronavirus. Henley got a slightly better deal because he'd brought the whole matter to light with the police in the first place. He first became eligible for parole only a few years into his sentence, on July the 8th, 1980. He's been eligible a couple more times since, but he's always been denied. As of July 2020, he's the only member of the murderous trio who's still alive. That was the case of Dean Call, the largest recorded mass murderer in Texas and American history. It shows how, under the right circumstances, a person can be persuaded to do pretty much anything. You might remember, David Brooks was only 15 years old when Cole managed to persuade him. Anyway, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to follow Behind Bars on all the social medias, which are linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or favourite cases, go email them to behindbarsthepod at yahoo.com. That's also linked in the description if you're not sure how to spell it. Thanks for listening and have a great week and a summer holiday if you've got a child or you're a teacher. Almost forgot it's that time of year again. Alright, see you next week. Mm -hmm.